was it good? Was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway or new on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a new podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined by our guest, podcaster extraordinaire, Rob W. Schneider. Rob is the co-host of Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends with Kevin David Thomas and Gay Card Revoked with Robbie Roselle. He is also the artistic director of the J2 Spotlight Musical Theatre Company and an original programming producer at 54 Below. He has also directed at theaters around the country. Thank you for being here, Rob. Thank you, Charles, for having me. I'm so honored and so delighted that uh, to be one of your guests and that you're doing this. I think this is incredible. You're so brilliant at what you do. I can't wait for the whole world to find this out. Thank you. Before we even start, I'll say to our listeners, you should definitely listen to both of Rob's podcasts, Behind the Curtain and Gay Card Revoke. So find those after you listen to this. Thank you, Charles. We appreciate the promotion. Thank you. <laughs> so let's start at the beginning. What were some of the first shows you saw and how did you start loving theater? Um, some of the first shows I saw, I was very lucky. I spent the beginning years of my life in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And my mom, uh, who actually passed away this year, uh, she was a, a real big uh, theater buff and a real big theater fan. And she made sure that like the love of the arts was also passed on to me. And so there really wasn't a weekend that went by from the time I was like three years old on, you had to like say you were like five, I think, to get into the theater, but she used to lie. I was like, oh, he's five. Um, and they would put me like in a little suit and a little bow tie. And there was not like a weekend that went by where we didn't do something artistic, mostly going to see a Broadway show. So I saw like the original productions of Lacage and um, Starlight Express and Me and My Girl on 42nd Street. So that was that. But I was also, I was really fascinated as a kid by uh, Broadway graphics, like, you know, like Broadway posters and stuff. And so one of the big highlights was every Sunday, they would buy the Sunday New York Times and they would, my mom and I would go through the arts and leisure section. And we would like look at all the different graphics together. And then they decided to start driving me up and down uh, uh, Times Square to look at the actual marks in person. And there's lots of geeky photographs of me like at three and four years old, like standing next to all these different like Broadway posters. So that's how I got into it. That's how I got into it. I, was, I had very supportive parents. I was very lucky. Did you always know that you wanted to be a director? No, actually. Um, I started off as an actor. Um, I was an actor in Los Angeles. I did, um, I did a lot of stage, but I also did a, a nice number of film and television things as well. And I, uh, I loved acting and I really enjoyed it, but I kind of approached acting from like a directorial point of view. And um, what I thought was very like charming as a kid, like to give notes on how a scene should be played or, you know, what, you know, a better way to end this commercial copy. I don't think was seen as like so charming and cute by other people. And so like around 17 or 18, I was like, maybe I should try directing um, and not acting. And I did. And I found that I enjoyed that much more. I found this is, I know this is a really arrogant thing to say, and I hope it doesn't come off as arrogant. For me, I didn't find acting to be very challenging. 
maybe because I just wasn't really good at it. <laughs> and so that's why I wasn't challenging. But I found directing to be incredibly challenging, this idea that you're responsible not only for, uh, uh, you know, what's going on on stage, but what's going on off stage, that a whole vision has to go all the way through you. So yeah, that's how I got into directing. And I started when I was like 17, 18. Well, I'd be curious to know what sort of movies and TV did you do? Anything we would have seen? Oh, probably not. They used to cast me in a lot of uh, like foreign commercials. I I did a whole bunch of like Levi's jeans commercials, but they were only broadcast, I think, in the Netherlands. Um, so if you're if you're from the Netherlands and you've seen me, hello. Um, I did a couple of music videos. I was in an, a music video with LL Cool J. Um, I did a couple of TV movies of the week, something with Farrah Fawcett called Silk Hope, um, which I think most of my part was cut. So, so, so no, not really, not really. Unless you're a huge Farrah Fawcett fan, then maybe you did see me in Silk Hope. So how did you get your start in New York theater? Oh, boy. Um, I was very lucky. I was very, very lucky because when I first moved to New York, I moved to New York older than most people moved to New York. Um, I came up when I was 30 years old. I had spent a lot of time teaching at Penn State University. So most people that come up in their early to mid-20s, I was, I was doing in Penn State teaching because I thought, you know, academia was the place I wanted to go. So I got up when I was 30. I didn't know anybody except um, I entered the SDC Observership Program, which is the Society of Directors and Choreographers. It's a director's union. They do an observership program where you're assigned uh, a director and you get to go and you get to uh, you, you be mentored by them um, in one of their productions that they're doing at the time. And I, uh, Lonnie Price um, from Merrily Roll Along and all these um, other amazing shows, he was doing a production of Sweeney Todd at the New York Philharmonic with um, uh, Emma Thompson and Audra McDonald, Christian Borel. And he was looking for an observer. And so I applied and thank God he chose me. Um, and that's how I got my, that helped me a lot in the uh, start getting started in New York theater was observing Lonnie because it opened up a lot of doors because he sort of, you know, he gives you the stamp of approval and then you can take that to other places. But I, what I will say about Lonnie, and it's something that I hope that everybody, uh, gets at some point in their life is you get someone in your life as supportive as him, uh, because he then, uh, once the show was over, he kept calling me for other things and anyone who had observed for him. Uh, also had the same thing, which is he's he's a very loyal, brilliant artist. So I was I hung on to him for dear life. Uh, he was just great. It was a an amazing education to be mentored by him. And when you were doing that with him, did you get sort of any input on directing, or was it mainly just sort of watching? You, you mean uh, talking to him about like what works, what doesn't? Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. I want to. Yeah. This is to me. I was, I had never seen a director do this before and uh, it, it was such a blessing or a mitzvah as we like to say. Um, we were doing the opening number and uh, he was working on it. And then after rehearsal, he said, okay, everybody by the whole cast left. And he's like, hey, can everybody on the production staff stick around? This included like his assistant director, stage managers, interns, costume designers. And he said, okay, everybody come here. And everyone gathered in a big circle. And he said, okay. He goes, I'm not getting the opening right. I'm not doing something right with the opening. How can we fix it? And 25, 30 people all just started pitching him different. 
And to have the, and what I learned by that is just you don't always have to be the, to have the answer. You don't always have to be the answer, nor do you have to be the smartest person in the room. I actually think Lonnie is the smartest person in the room, but he doesn't act like he is. Or, and so that allowed everybody to just, oh, I mean, it, costume design interns were pitching out ideas that I think actually ended up being used. So for him, it's like whatever helps the story, I don't care where the idea comes from. That was a huge directorial lesson that I learned. Also watching him work with stars, because that's a big thing that he does. He works with a lot of big name people um, that are, you know, coming to these concert settings that are a little bit more insecure. And he, he guides them so brilliantly and so beautifully. And so watching how he navigates that is really incredible. Really incredible. Yeah. You also sort of assistant directed on a new musical called Vanities. How do you... I did. <laughs> did, yes. That was, just, that was an experience, yes. How do you approach it or see it differently if it's a new musical than if it's a revival? Um, in terms of like uh, being the assistant or just in terms of like how the whole show gets up on its feet? I think just the whole show. Yeah, well, for Va Vanities was a very interesting project and I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna try to be as polite as possible. Um, there's a lot more trial and error in uh in a new musical and there's a lot of uh you know there's a lot of cut you know if you're doing so if you're doing something like sweeney todd you know it works because some somebody has spent all this time before you figuring out what's going to work and what doesn't work and you don't even have the exposure to what didn't work so sweeney even if you follow the formula of it you're really in great shape and that's pretty much any other pre-existing work as well even if the show isn't good there's at least a pre-existing formula on a new show you know, you're trying things right up until the show has to be frozen. And sometimes, you know, even then, like in the case of like Camelot, you know, it's like even after the show opens, we'll, still, we'll try out some new stuff. Um, Vanities was one of those shows that just, it, 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 I, I don't think, I don't think it knew what it wanted to be. I think the musical did not know what it wanted to be. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think anybody in the room knew what it wanted to be either. And I think that was a huge problem. There was not a, I, I, I don't feel like there was a singular vision guiding the show into one direction. Um, there were a lot of, there was, it was interesting to see how a new musical comes together in a commercial environment. So uh, there's more trial and error. I don't even know if that answered your question, Charles. I'm so sorry. No, it did. You can, you can private message me for all the great details of, of Vanities. I did Vanities as a, um, as an internship um, uh, through my graduate school program, because you have to do it, a professional internship, and they required you to keep a diary of, of the show. And so I just, I was cleaning out my bedroom recently and I found the old diary and I was starting to read it and I was like, oh my God, like, this, was, this was a crazy experience. This was a crazy experience. Some good songs, there's some good songs in it though. Some good songs and, and uh, Dan Connectus, Connectus, Dan Connectus, Connectus. Sorry, sorry, Dan. Um, choreographed it. He did a brilliant job. He, his choreography was really great. Sarah Stiles from Tootsie was in it. She was hysterical. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, there were some really good parts of the show. Some really good parts of the show. So when you direct on your own, who have you found are some of your favorite playwrights or writers to direct? Oh, I love directing uh, Neil Simon. I'm a, I, when I direct plays, I love directing Neil Simon um, it, uh, just because I find, I love finding the rhythm of the comedy, which is not always easy to do. I really enjoy that. I love Arthur Miller. Um, I, I love the, how visceral 
his work is, and I feel like there's such a great universality to it, but I really am drawn to like the visceral quality of it. When it comes to musicals, I'm a huge Aaron's and Flaherty fan. I love their work. I think they're absolute geniuses. Um, I'm a big Cy Coleman fan. I love doing Cy Coleman musicals. Um, in terms of contemporary stuff, I think Pasek and Paul are really brilliant. I love doing anything by them. Um, I got a chance to do Edges a while back, and I really, really enjoyed that. I love Jason Robert Brown's work as well. Um, the, but those are the ones I sort of, you know, I, I like to gravitate towards. Well, you direct in many different places. How often do you find yourself applying to direct a certain show, and how often do you find you get to sort of choose the show? Uh, more often than not, there's a show slotted into the season, and then they'll ask me to come on and and direct it. I, it's rare for me, I think, except for my own theater, for me to like uh, say like, oh, I really, I really want to do um, uh, Memphis. Uh, which theater is going to allow me to do that? Usually, like something like Memphis is slotted into their season, and they're looking for a director. And if they don't choose me, they'll choose someone else. But that show is definitely going to happen. So more often than not, um, I'm approached to do a show. I don't really bring the show to other people. Um, there's one theater I work at a lot where I sort of have that comfort level of being able to pitch different ideas to the artistic director, but whether or not they choose to do it is up to them. So what shows that you've done do you think you've put the most sort of radical a spin on or different to spin on? Um, oh, boy, oh, okay. So I, I did, uh, there's a couple, there's a couple. Um, I did a production of Sound of Music um, that was done in a black box. Um, it was uh, maybe a 99-seat theater in Los Angeles, um, and that felt had a really radical spin just because you really couldn't do a lot because it was so, you know, the confines of the space. And it was dark. It was a really dark uh, production of it. Um, people seemed to like it. People seemed to like it, um, but it was darker. That was one that I really wanted to tap into because I think Rodgers and Hammerstein get sort of a bum rap I think they, um, I think a lot of people go, oh, they're so saccharine, they're so sweet, they're, you know. I don't think that's the case. I think that we've seen a lot of productions that emphasize that saccharine and that sweetness. Uh, but if you look at these shows, I mean, Carousel is about spousal abuse. South Pacific is about racism. Um, you know, Oklahoma is about a group of individuals trying to figure out what exactly will be the law of this new land that they're trying to create. So I think that to me is more interesting than like, she's going to wear a gingham dress and she's going to sing. People will say we're in love. You know, that's, uh, that doesn't do it for me per se. Um, so that was one. My production of Company that I did in graduate school felt pretty radical. Um, I, I'm not a big concept person, to be honest with you. My, my feeling is, is your job as a director is to put the story on stage um, as clearly as possible, as opposed to like, look at me, look at me, look at me. No, I don't want you looking at my direction. Um, I want you looking at the art, the actors, and I want you to look at the writing. I don't want you looking at me. And I, ha I actually do, I have a very big problem with directors that do that, where it's all about their direction. Uh, but my production of Company, we made him um, a photographer because there was all, you know, there's all those things about like all those photos up on the walls and it's much better living it than looking at it. So we made him a photographer. And so when you came into the theater, all of his photos were on display, um, including um, photos that he was going to take in those scenes. So like you were getting, he always had this camera around his neck. 
Um, so like someone was is waiting was done like in a red room like where you're developing photographs and he was looking at all the different girls he had done. And at the end of the show, he finally took his like camera off of his neck, and that was like you know I'm ready to move on. So that was that was fun. That was fun. But usually I just like to direct what's on the page. I'm not a really big conceptual person. Although people will say like when they've seen one of my shows, they're like, oh, we can tell that you directed it. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means. And I know I was talking to Jerry Zachs once and I know people said the same thing to him, you know, uh, and he's like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what the Jerry Zach style means. So I think so. So it's up to let other people tell you what that means. In terms of judging auditions for parts and shows, what have been some of the most difficult, either for emotional reasons or just two people were very good for the part? Oh, okay. So one of the things that, um, I try to look for when I'm casting is I'm not necessarily looking for how they did it before um, or, or how the role was created before. Um, I remember I was doing a production of Guys and Dolls a while back and the person that we came, that came in for Miss Sarah Brown um, was, not, was not the body type that is usually associated with that role. And I wanted to cast her, but I got a lot of uh, resistance from from the other people on the creative team because they're like that's not how she's done that's not how she's played blah 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 um and i just i try not to subscribe to that idea so that sometimes it's hard to like you know do you know, as an as a former actor it's very hard for me to be like that's not how i would have done the role and be like well no but that's it's a better way what that person's bringing to the room is a much better way of how you would have done it or how you were thinking of doing it yeah so once you're in a room, do you find that usually students or professionals are more receptive to your ideas? Students. Students are more receptive <laughs> to my ideas. Um, students are more experimental. I think professionals, um, and I've, you know, I'll, be, I'll be honest with you, I have been very lucky. I have worked with a lot of wonderful people and rarely, I think I can count on one hand, the number of actors that I've worked with that I was like, I will never work with them again because they're resistant. And I think the resistance comes, uh, not, may, you know, maybe my idea is bad or maybe I'm not communicating it correctly. Um, but a lot of times I think it comes from self, their own self-preservation. They don't want to look foolish. They don't want to look stupid. Maybe they've been in situations before where a director has approached them with an idea that they felt in their gut was not correct and they were embarrassed and now they're going to continue uh, now, now they're going to like try to keep up an armor so that doesn't happen again. But for me, that happens very rarely. I've been very lucky. Uh, but students are more receptive because I don't, they don't come with that baggage. And they're also, they're trying to learn. You know, they're trying to, and they're game for anything. But I will say the best professionals have that same energy that the students have, which is I'm game for anything. Let me give it a try. What's the worst that can happen? You know, but like I said, I've only worked with a, maybe four or five actors in my life that I'm like, I will never work with you again Be because there's no sense of joy. There's no sense of play. There's no sense of, you know, wanting to learn about, not so much about acting, but about like the world in which we're trying to create, you know? But I guarantee you, if you sit in a rehearsal room with like real professionals, like uh, people that are at the top of their game, look at the sense of play that they have and look at the sense of exploration, you know? So... I've been lucky in that way. Without naming any names, unless you can or want to, <laughs> as a director, has it ever felt to you to sort out like spats or fights among the cast and creative team? 
yes, yes. I mean that. I mean, no, that's your. I mean, you know, as your job as a director, that is, that's your job. You know, which is you, you sometimes have to play referee. Um, I once again, I have been lucky. Um, there's only been a couple of experiences in my life where um, I've had to like step in to like break up a fight. Um, yeah, it's fine. It's 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 uh, yeah, it's it's fine. And and usually, if I'm having a fight with somebody, it's you. I'll be the first to say, look, I've obviously not explained something correctly, or I'm doing something that's making you uncomfortable. Can we? What what can we do so we have the best show possible? You know. And there have been a few times where, and I try not to do this because I don't think it's healthy. I've lost my temper maybe three times in my entire career in a rehearsal environment. Um, and it's not a good, it's, I don't think it's good to start there. I've seen directors start there. I've seen directors start with the yelling and with the screaming and it gets nothing. It gets absolutely nothing. The only few times that I think I've yelled is because the person was just not giving me what I asked for, even though I asked for it numerous times and they told me that they would be able to provide it. And my big thing, and I always tell this to all my designers is I don't like surprises. You know, if something can't happen, tell me. I won't get angry if you tell me. We'll figure out another solution. But don't promise me throughout this entire process, like, the sofa's going to be green. And then on opening, it's a yellow sofa. You know, like, don't do that. Just tell me, and we can work it out. But, yeah, you do have to do that. That's your job as a director. You know, you're, you're, you're dealing with 70 egos and 70 different methods of training and 70 different processes. How do you put them all together in a cohesive environment? Yeah. As a director, at what point in the process do you usually demand that the actors be off book? I'm listen. I'm I'm okay with with you know, you carry the script around for a while, or you want to get rid of the script early. Everyone has their own process. Mm-hmm. I usually will say, look, my I, I'll say my, here's my preferred methodology, and if you know you don't like it, we can talk about it. You hold the script while we're staging a scene. Then we'll run the scene once or twice, and you can still hold it. But the next time we come back to it, I would really prefer that the script is out of your hand, just so that way you can make a more genuine connection with your scene partner, you know? And some actors can do that without a problem. Some actors are like, hey, I kind of need it a little bit longer than that. That's fine. If we're getting into tech and you're still holding it, we have a problem. Yeah. Who do you- You know, but most actors are very self-sufficient and know that most actors know themselves. And so you don't have to really worry about when they're going to do it. So as a director, what do you think are some of your favorite sort of theaters to work at and to direct in? I love regional theaters. I really, really love regional theaters. Um, What I love about regional theaters is, is that they have a very specific enthusiasm for their spaces and they have a very and what I love is is that you know you could direct My Fair Lady at a theater in Pennsylvania but you know you're going to have to direct it differently for when you do it in Massachusetts because the the regional audiences differ in what they like what their tastes are and I enjoy that I, that's a that's a real like fun puzzle I love going to explore different towns I love going to explore different cities um and so I like regional work I would if you know to be honest with you if someone said to me you can never direct in New York again but you can direct regionally for the rest of your life I would be very happy with that really happy with that and I like working in new spaces you know I like working in in the round I like working in three-quarter proscenium you know, 3,000 seat houses, 30 seat houses. I love all that. I love all that. When you direct at a school, 
in, or in a school, do you usually try to cast different students as the leads in different productions, or do you sometimes cast the same students? This is a, that's a great question and such a tricky question. Um, most schools are going to have like one or two people that are always going to get the leads and everything. You know, that's just it's sort of the way it goes. Um, and I'm not I I don't I'm not a huge fan of that. So I will try to find as many different opportunities for people as possible. Um, but more often than not, like, I mean, I went to Penn, I was at Penn State for about seven years. I did three years of graduate school there and four years of teaching. And I think there were maybe in all those shows, we did maybe four kids that always had the leads. You know, they just, and, and it excludes a whole group of individuals, you know, that are paying the same amount of money. I think schools need to do a better job at saying like, what can we do to make sure everyone gets a chance at having a leading role? just because it allows them to understand how to sustain a show for a long amount of time and to be the motor of a show. Um, but I, I, I will try to diversify it. I will try to diversify it. So now I want to ask you, um, how did you get your job at 54 Below? I, um, that's a great question. I, I'm trying to think of when I got my job at 54 Below. Uh, 2015? 2015, I think? Is that right? I think. Okay. I don't know. 2015. Um, Jen Tepper, um, who's the original programming producer there, she and I had done a master class in Pennsylvania together, and I really liked her. Um, and an ad popped up, I think it was on Playbill, saying that they were looking for programming producers. And so I emailed her, and I was like, I'm going to apply for this. I hope that's cool. And she's like, oh, my God, absolutely. You'd be the ideal candidate for this. I had never produced anything before at all. Um, nothing and i was like well let me let me see if i like this so i said to her i said i'll do a show and if you like it we'll continue on and if i like it we'll continue on and that's i don't know like a hundred shows earlier like that you know we're like we're almost at a hundred shows together now um but that's how i got the job it was just simply an ad and i i sort of knew her ahead of time um yeah it was it, yeah and i've been doing that pretty much ever since and that's like if you had to be like oh what's he known for that's probably like what i'm known for in the city is it's like that's the 54 guy so when you, you've directed some of the concerts too, when you direct, oh, yes. yeah. when you direct a concert, how do you find that directing sort of takes a different form when it's not as much about the staging? You don't really get to direct. I mean, you, I mean, the, I mean, you know, the thing I love most about directing is the thing you can't do at 54 or below and that's staging. I love staging more than anything. Um, for this, what you really have to do is you just, it's, it's one, it's like, does the show, does the flow of the show feel correct? That's really the only thing you can focus on. And you have no rehearsal time. You know, most of these actors are, when they come into 54 Below, are getting, <clears throat> excuse me, either no money or an incredibly small amount of money. I like doing epic shows. I like doing a, a concert where it's like 40 people on stage. And we can't, you know, we can't pay them. The number of like really big name celebrities, Charles, that I was just like, here's $5 and a drink ticket that, I mean, like it would astound you. Board. So my, my thing is, is like, you have to, you focus on just the flow of the show feel correct. Does this feel like we're, we're actually on an emotional journey, even though it's going to be a static stage picture the whole time and the casting diversifying the casting and making sure that like you really think outside the box when it comes to casting these concerts. So that's really where my 
I enjoy casting a lot. I actually enjoy that process a lot. And at 54 Below, how do you, how do you sort of cast? Do you ever hold auditions or is No, it- no. We, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know if other people do. No, it's just, you just go out and you email people and you're like, do you have any interest in doing this? Um, and yeah, and it's, it's kind of fun because it's not a big commitment. Yeah. You know, when, when we, were doing, um, uh, uh, we were doing a show called Foxy at 54 Below, which is this old, old show from the 60s. Um, but you're like, it's, it's a show that never gets done. It's, one, it's literally one performance. There's like no rehearsals. And you, so I was like, why? So let's ask people, like, what's the harm in asking? What are they going to do? They're going to say no. So we asked like, and they did say no. We asked Nathan Lane. We asked Jason Alexander. We asked Richard Kind. We asked Richard Ch- Kevin Chamberlain. We asked Jerry Zachs. Like, and, and Jerry Zachs came like this close, like a millimeter away from accepting. And then he didn't. Um, and then we got the great Jim Brochu in there. But like, uh, my feeling is, it's like, yeah, ask. Uh, yeah, we don't, ha- we don't have auditions. It's just asks. We just ask people like, do you have any interest in doing this? Have you ever had any actors who sort of canceled at the last minute? All the time. Oh. All the time. Absolutely. There's a couple, I won't name names, um, that were like, <laughs> we, 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 they say yes, and we're like, we need to find someone early on to like sing oh. their song, because we know they're going to drop out. Um, but yeah, oh my God. Yeah, we, I mean, when we did Foxy, our narrator didn't show up. The, we had a celebrity narrator show um, scheduled, and he didn't show up. He got sick. Um, but yeah, we have that all the time. We have that all the time. What are some of the concerts you've been proudest of how they've turned out? Oh, you know, okay, that's a great question. You know, there's one I'm really proud of, um, uh, and that's we did uh, 54 celebrates the Colonial Theater. Um, if you remember a few years ago, the Colonial Theater was um, in danger of being torn down. And being, uh, I think it was going to be a cafeteria for the school was a rumor at a, at a certain point. Um, and Jen and I decided that we were going to do a concert. And the idea of the concert was to bring notoriety to the fact that the Colonial was in trouble, which nobody really was interested in beforehand. Like, it was like, oh, yeah, it's an old theater. It's going to go, whatever. It's sad, it's sad, it's sad. I don't know what happened, but the concert got so much traction. I got a call from, I think it was the dean of Emerson who was like, why are you doing this? And why, you know, why are you making fun of us? And why are you being, you know? And I was like, we're not. I said, that's not at all what we're doing. I said, we're celebrating the theater. We're not, say, we're not like coming at you. We're not mentioning you by name or the school by name. I said, I think it's not a smart decision what you're doing. I said, but it's not an attack. But all these newspapers in Boston had picked up what we were doing in New York. And it put a lot of pressure on Emerson. And they rescinded. And so I, I would like to think in some way that what we did helped save that theater. So I'm really proud because what was supposed to just be another fun night of entertainment ended up having a lasting effect after that. Um, so that was, a big, that was a big one for me. We did the Memphis cast reunion, um, which was really special. Uh, we did the Lennon cast reunion, the John Lennon musical. That was a very special evening. It's fun to bring to bring those things together. That's, that's, those are some of the ones that I'm really, really proud of. We did a, we did a Charles Strauss show called a Broadway musical, which um, he, which was just very touching. He gave a speech at the end that, you know, that night made him feel like what he had created 40 years ago was actually valid. Um, 
those to me are my very special moments when you're when an older writer is seeing what they created so many years ago that might have been dismissed so many years ago was so beloved by all these people that they were never really aware of until we did the show at 54 below that brings me right to my next question which is what are some of the shows that you've sort of revived where you've worked the closest with the original composer uh ballroom uh with billy goldenberg who just passed away this month um uh, was a big one billy was very active golden Rainbow with walter marks uh, who now developed a really great relationship with each other that was a big one um uh, that was a big one for us um uh, 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 Broadway musical with Charles was a big one. Um, we did a UB well, well, UB Blake is dead, so he's not. He doesn't really count. But we did. We had the original cast. Um, but yeah, those are the ones where I've worked with the with the authors the closest on 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 getting these shows back. Because a lot of them, you know, like in the case of Ballroom, there were tons of songs that were cut. You know, tons. And Billy never wanted these songs to be cut. And so he would work with us and go, here was this song, you know, and here was that, and here was this, and this is why this was here, and that was there. And so he was great. And Golden Rainbow was great because Walter was really adamant, you know, there were no orchestrations, you know, nobody does Golden Rainbow. So Walter was very helpful in like piecing together um, what was missing. And on, the, on both those shows, I had an amazing musical director named Joshua Zecker Ross, who's just like a genius. Who are some of the guests that you've been proudest to sort of secure for your concerts? Oh my gosh. Well, there's like, oh, I'm lucky. Like when I, I was looking at a list recently of all the people I've worked with and I was like, how did you get to work with these people? Um, uh, I, oh my God, I'm just, my, my mind is like, there's so many people. Okay, I, okay for me, cause I'm a huge campy television fan. The fact that Joyce DeWitt from Three's Company like flew in from New Mexico to be in Woman of the Year, I'm like, I can die a happy man. Like that, that, that was, that was incredible. But I mean, like, you know, we've, we've had, oh my, Beth Level, Maurice Hines. Um, I'm a huge fan of a, of a musical theater artist named Ernestine Jackson, um, who was very big in the seventies and we got her for a concert and I was like, amazing. I, I've worked a lot with Martin Charnin, uh, Charles Strauss, um, Lonnie Price did something for us. Um, uh, 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 Julia Murney, I'm like obsessed with. Uh, Marilyn May, I've had Marilyn May in a few concerts. Like, uh, th th these are all people, George Salazar, um, who, I, I, George is a, a friend and I love him so, so much and he's done stuff for us. Leroy Reams is a hoot. Um, one of the things I was, I this is like one of the things I wished we could have done more of, but the club just didn't want us to. We did a thing called 54 Plays Match Game. You know, like like RuPaul snatch snatch game, um, and it was I hosted it, but our panel was George Salazar, Jen Cody, Leroy Reams, Julia Murney, Robbie Rizal, and um, Alexis Michelle. It was one of the greatest nights ever. It was so much fun. But I took a moment. I looked at this panel and I'm like, where did like how did I get this lucky? Like, how did I get this lucky to have all of these incredible people on stage at this moment? So I'm lucky. I mean, the first concert I did was like, I was kind of like pinching myself because it was like Chip Zine and um, Bar uh, Barbara Walsh and Beth Level. And you were just kind of like, my God. Yeah. Have there ever been any actors, but have there ever been any actors who have said, I'll do it, but not if I have to work with this other actor? 
What a great question. I, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to mention any names, okay? <clears throat> but here we go. We had, I'll, I'll give you clues. And if you can figure it out, I, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. We were doing a concert and we secured a writer, a very big writer, to come and sing one of their songs in the concert. We were very excited. And then a day before the concert, he called me and he said, hey, I see on the cast list, Blank is in the show. What is she doing? And I said, oh, well, actually, they're going to sing one of your songs. And they said, oh, okay. Three hours later, hey, I'm so sorry. I have to back out. Something has come up and I have to leave town. And it was so clear. It was, it was like, you, you like, it, it's just, it was very clear that this person did not want to be in this room with that person. Oh. And I was like, okay. But no, that's the only, that's, I think that's the only time we've had that. We've had like some interesting situations. Like when we did Curtains, um, I had Michael Riedel in it. Um, and I like him. I think he's a really fun guy. Um, but Eddie Corbich was in the show too, I think, that when we were doing Curtains. Actually, no, it, was, it wasn't just Eddie. It was a bunch of people. But like Michael was in the room with all these people that he like, he, ru like, he ruined their shows. He savaged their oh. shows. And I, I think Eddie was, said something that Michael, you know, really went after Susicle when they were in trouble. And I, I didn't really take that into account. You know what I mean? Like, I thought it was great to have Michael in the room because he's, it's a great part for him. But I didn't really take into account, like, he would have to interact with a lot of these people that he, like, had, you know, <laughs> it wasn't the, the kindest to their shows. So before I move on to your podcasting career, I want to talk about your theater company, J2 Spotlight. Awesome. So how did you sort of come up with the idea for that? I had always wanted to work at Encores. Um, I'm a huge fan of Encores. I'm a huge fan of this idea of, of you know, bringing back these shows that deserve a re-examination. And I never got a chance to work at Encores, and I never got a chance to work at the York and at, at, on a Mufti, because they do those as well. And I couldn't work at musicals tonight. Like, none of these companies would hire me. Um, and I was like, well, I'm going to create my own company then. Like, you know, what's that thing? Like, if no one wants you to play in their sandbox, great, I'll build my own sandbox. Um, but I wanted to make sure it wasn't doing what they were doing because what they do is brilliant. And excuse me, the three people that run those separate organizations are each brilliant gentlemen. But I was like, there's really no place. There's no like equity library theater anymore. Do you know what it was this theater that was around in the 60s through the 1980s. And it was a theater that was on Riverside, uh, like 103rd and Riverside. And what they would do is, is they would do like showcase performances of musicals and plays that were pre-existing. Um, and so it was like little mini revivals, but they would, it was done specifically to introduce new talent to casting directors and agents. And the big thing was the New York Times would come to review it. So you could leave with a review from the New York Times, which was pretty, you know, pretty impressive. And they had been around for about 30 years and then they stopped, they, they ceased operation. And so I was like, could we bring something like that back? Because all these other companies were really hiring professionals, you know, they were hiring professionals. I was like, can we sort of bring back what Equity Library Theater was doing? Um, and that was, that was the inspiration behind that. No one was hiring me and I wanted to give people exposure. <laughs> 
so did you choose the shows for the season? Yes, yes and no. So I am, God bless this man, a gentleman by the name of Jim Jamiro, who founded and created the Walt Disney Channel and Walt Disney Home Video. He and I became friendly with each other, and he uh, is the executive producer of the organization. So he and I in tandem will select which shows we're going to do for our first season. So our first season, we did Seesaw, No Strings, and A Class Act. Um, and then uh, Class Act was opening the night that uh, the, the shutdown went into effect. So uh, we weren't able to do a Class Act. It's done. It's ready to go. Uh, and it'll be the first show of our second season, which if everything goes hopefully well with, with you know, getting COVID under control, um, we will do in February. It'll be the first show in our February season and then two more shows in addition to that. How do you sort of see the company coming back while still having to meet the guidelines? I, uh, you know what, I, I mean, our, our number one priority is actor and audience safety. That's the number one thing for us. Um, when we, if we come back in February, I think we'll be the first show in theater row that's, that's dealing with uh, how to do this. I mean, we won't do programs, you know, um, everyone will have to wear a mask um, in the audience. Um, I don't know if we're going to have to remove seats to like keep up with six foot distancing. I mean, we'll find that out. But listen, we'll do whatever they ask us to do. If they're like, listen, you can only do shows where people stand six feet apart and they wear masks. Okay, great. We'll make it work. Like, um, we, I don't think it's, I don't think it's helpful to resist science. I don't think it's helpful to resist what people think are good safety practices. So we're, we are game and we will, we will, we will try. We will absolutely try to like, we will try to come back, but we're not stupid. We're not going to try to come back if it's not safe. That's crazy. I'm seeing a lot of theaters around the country now where like they're trying to come back and, you know, they're like, oh, well, you know, people will wear masks. Or I saw, I mean, I've seen some photographs of some production companies where they're not wearing masks. You know what I mean? And they're not adhering to six foot distance. No one should die because they wanted to play Usnavi and In the Heights. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's a great show. It's amazing. Wait till we're like over this, you know, just Bridget and bring it on is lovely. You shouldn't have to die because you want to play Bridget. Yeah. So now I'd like to ask you about your amazing podcast. So we're sort of following that, that guideline. So oh now, my gosh. Yeah. So first I'd like to ask you how you met Kevin David Thomas. I met Kevin. Um, Kevin and I, I did not know each other at all. Um, and I was teaching, we were, we both teach at the New York Film Academy, which has a musical theater program. And I remember one day I subbed an auditions class and Kevin was the sub accompanist for the auditions class. And I didn't know him. He didn't know me. We were like, Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. So a kid was singing and she was singing some comedy song. I can't remember what it was. And Kevin said, you know, you should really sing um, a song called He Had Refinement. And I looked at him and I was like, from A Tree Grows in Brooklyn? And he's like, yes. And he's like, isn't that a great score? And we just started talking about it. And I felt bad. The whole rest of the class was just like sitting there looking at us because I had no idea what was going on. But I was like, I really like this guy. I really like this guy. And when I came up with the idea for the podcast, I was like, I know I need a co-host. And I'm like, I, I want this guy. So I really pursued him. I really pursued him aggressively. I don't know if he, I don't know, if, you know, because I'm sure you'll interview him at some point. I don't know what he'll say, but the, I met him at teaching a class and I like, 
latched on to this guy and was like, you have to do this with me. Um, and I was very forceful about that. So there are a lot of theater podcasts. How did you sort of come up with a way to make yours unique? I, um, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't listen to podcasts. Um, so I was like unfamiliar with like, and at the time, you know, to be honest with you, when we first started, which was what, 2016, I think we started in February of 2016. Um, there, there really weren't that many. There was Ken Davenport had one, which was from a producer's perspective. Um, there was, uh, uh, theater people that, um, Patrick Hines did and Patrick, I love Patrick so much. I can't even tell you. I just, he's a very special person. Uh, but he was interviewing uh, people that had current shows running on Broadway. And I was like, there really was no podcast looking at the history, looking at people who had done it, but maybe weren't doing it so much anymore. And I, I got an, there's a great podcast called Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast, um, which came on before us about a year or so before us that I was obsessed with because he was interviewing people that you wouldn't think of. Like you were like, oh, like I would never have thought about interviewing this sort of person. And I was like, they have the best stories. So I was like, let's, let's focus on the past. Let's not focus on the present. You know, Ben Platt will not be on our show. Idina Menzel will not be on our show. Not because they're not brilliant people. My God, they are. But there's so many other podcasts that are preserving their stories. So let's talk to the people whose stories are going to go away. And I think one of the joys of doing theater is, is you sit with older people. It's a passed down history. You know, you know, you're sitting in the dressing room and you're hearing someone tell a funny story. To hear them tell it, to me, is more effective than reading it in a book. You know what I mean? Because um, you don't have their voice. You just don't have their voice. So I was like, how, many of that, how much of that can we capture? And I think, you know, we're on our 230th, or no, the, this week we released our 228th interview. In addition to the 228 My Favorite Things episodes that we do every week. So we're close to having produced 500 episodes. We're getting, we're getting close to 500 episodes in total. Um, but that's how, we, that's how we've, we, we looked at it. I was like, let's do what Gilbert Gottfried is doing, but do it for theater. And let's make sure we're not doing anything that anyone else is doing because one, but I w I'm going to go back and say, at first I was like, I don't want to be competition. And then as, as more podcasts have come out, it doesn't feel like it's competition because we all love theater. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And because we all love it, we're fine if it all comes from different angles. And also it's not like a television show or an old, the way television show used to be, it's not like my podcast and your podcast are in competition with each other. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. not like they're both at Monday at five o'clock and we can only pick one or the other. That's not how this goes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So if you, if you say to me, hey, I'm having Peter Felicia on as a guest, I'm over the moon because I love Peter and I want to tune in and hear what he has to say with you the same way you're going to tune in and listen when we have him on our show. So it's not, I have found the Broadway podcast community is not competitive, but very helpful because we just love it so much. We love, and we'll trade like, uh, you know, how did you get this person on your show? Can you get me this person's contact info? We love that. So that's, that's, sorry, that's a long answer, but that's how we got into all of this. And I'm happy we did. I'm, I'm, I hate to say that a lot of the people, not a lot of the people, but an, a, a number of people that we've had on the show, we were their last interview. 
you know, and and it's also interesting, I think, to talk about like like got like Charlotte Ray, who I was not the best interview we've ever had. <laughs> But most time when people talk to her, they'd be like, tell me about playing Mrs. Garrett on The Facts of Life. Tell me about the girls. Tell me about different strokes. And here is a woman who had this incredibly impressive theatrical career. She was in the Three Penny Opera. She was in Little Abner. She worked with Michael Kidd. She worked with a lot of le- – she worked with all these people, and nobody wanted to talk to her about that. So, But we do. We want to hear about it. So it's it's giving a chance for for people to like talk about things they never talked about before. Like you can go back and listen. I'm sorry if I'm rambling, but you can listen to our interview with a guy named Peter Marshall, who most people know he was a game show host. He hosted the Hollywood Squares, but he was this amazing musical theater actor that had so many great stories about his career. Um, and at the end of the interview, he's like, I want to thank you. He's like, I think this is one of the first interviews where someone realized I was an actor. You know, I just wasn't the guy on the game show. And we love when we hear that. We love when we hear that. Sorry, I'm very excited about our podcast. (laughs) So who have been some of the most difficult guests for one reason or another? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Ay, ay, ay. We... We've been lucky. We've had, we've only had a couple where we were, where I think we were like, what is going on? We ha- I won't name names. I won't name names. But if you listen to the show, maybe you can figure it out. We had, no, I'll, I'll tell, no, what the hell? We've talked about it on the show, so I don't care. We interviewed Lee Adams, who um, is a lyricist. He did Bye Bye Birdie, right? And, you know, all that stuff. And we called him. We called him for the interview. And we were like, we'll call you at six o'clock. And I th- I swear to you, Charles, I think we dialed the number at 5.59. And he, I phone, hello? I said, hi, Mr. Adams. This is Rob Schneider from Behind the Curtain. You're early. I was like, oh, shit. I'm like, we're already off to a great start. He talked about Birdie. He talked about Golden Boy. But we really wanted to talk about, like, the shows after that. And, like, how do you sustain a career after you've had these, like, Massive hits. And wait, Charles, help me. What's b- b- besides Bye Bye Birdie? What's the other ones that he, he did? Like other big ones? He did. He did All American, right? Yeah, All American. And I feel like there's a big uh, one I'm missing. Yeah. Super, maybe Superman. I don't know. Yeah. So Superman. anyway, okay. But we want to talk about the other things and like, you know, like how did, you know, how do you write when like your, your partner moves on? Because Charles Strauss, you know, found out that. He did not want to talk about that. He just did not want to talk about it. It was like a 20-minute interview, and like around the 25-minute mark, he's like, okay, I got to go. And you're like, oh, okay. So that was a difficult one. That was a di- Maybe he was having a bad day. Maybe we were not on the top of our game. Um, Pat Birch was an interesting one. She was the one that we had wanted for a long time. She was Hal Prince's choreographer. She was a director in her own right. She's a brilliant film and television director and choreographer. She just was not... It was very like monosyllabic. It was like, you did this show. Yes. Okay. Did you have fun? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like she didn't want to like, she just didn't want to, you know, add on to anything. So that was a, that was a tough one. Now, of course, as soon as we went off air, she had lots of great stories to tell. She was like telling some really fabulous stories off air. Um, those, those were tough. There was one. There's a couple of them, I'm going to be honest with you, Charles, that after they pass away, 
I'll probably like I'll I'll be I'll be more open. But there was some there was some wonky ones. One one person came drugged out of their mind. Like it was so so clear they were on something. One person we had to go to their house and it was literally it made Grey Gardens look like, you know, hygiene USA. Like it was the nastiest house I've ever been to in my life. Um but those are those are I mean those were those were some one of the ones where we oh, John Simon was tough. John Simon was tough. John Simon, if we all remember, was this uh, acidic critic, right? You know, who had this, you know, was Sylvia Sidney or Sylvia Miles dumped, you know, Sylvia Miles, right? Dumped pasta on his head or something. Um, he was horrible. He was, <laughs> he was, he was horrible. He was so, we brought him in because I thought it would be really good to show people like how critic, how the history of criticism has changed, you know? Because, you know, if you remember in his, his reviews, he used to go after what women looked like and their, you know, and body image and stuff like that. And it was just horrible. Um, and we wanted to talk about that. But he came in. He was homophobic. He was misogynistic. He was racist. Um, and I remember, I remember we asked him, I said, was there ever anything you put in uh, a review that an editor was like, you, this is crossing the line. You have to get rid of it. And he started laughing and he's like, yes, he goes, I remember quite clearly. He goes, I didn't think it was offensive. And he told us one of the most racist things I ever heard in my life that it involved Sammy Davis Jr. And um, it was so incredibly racist. And he didn't seem to understand like why what he was saying was racist. Um, that was a hard one because you, you start to dislike, that's really hard. Cause you know, when you're interviewing someone, you're trying to stay objective. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not sitting there going, boy, I really didn't like your work or, you know, I've heard this about you. You're trying, you're, that's not what the, you're there for. That was a hard one because as it progressed, you started to really dislike him. Do you know what I mean? Like it was, you just, you just felt really icky to have him in the room. And I think was that was one where we were debating whether or not we wanted to broadcast it. And we eventually did in a very condensed form. And we had three interviews that we always felt were kind of wonky, but there was some good stuff in it. And we put them together in one show. It was him, Susan Watson from Birdie, and a, an MGM actor named Carlton Carpenter. Um, and we, we got the best of those things. And we put them together in one show. What happened with the other two that made them unairable? Carlton, God bless him. He just, he was, he's very, he was, he's old. He's an old, old, old man. You know, he, he was an MGM actor. So he's got like age on him. And sometimes he would, he could, I think it was a hearing issue. Sometimes he could hear what we were saying. Sometimes he couldn't. He had his TV on in the background blasting at full volume. He wouldn't shut the TV off. Um, so there were like glimpses of that. And Susan Watson, it just, something didn't feel right. Something just did not feel right. And I couldn't tell what it was. I couldn't tell what it was. We didn't know if she, we, 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 we don't know. We just don't know what it was. We heard her husband in the background talking a lot. I don't know. So, but we were like, there were some moments of those that were really good, but they didn't warrant a full episode. Yeah. So I think last year or two years ago, we did what we called a summer sale, where we gave you three for the price of one. But John Simons was included in that as well. And that was just... Oh boy. Although it was funny for someone who was so like homophobic, we asked him, were there any shows recently that he liked? And he's like, I love the prom. He was a big prom fan and he loved Brooks Ash Manxis. Ash Manxis? 
I'm sorry, Brooks, I'm saying your name wrong. Um, but he loved Tim too. So we were like, oh, good for you, man. It's good. Conversely, I guess to Pat Birch, who have been some of the ones who have talked for too long. Oh, it's I it's not too long for me. And I don't I don't think it's too long for our audiences, but Leroy Reams. Leroy will talk and talk but there it's amazing stories do you know what i mean you're you're you at that point you're like i wish i wish we could go on forever and ever and ever um he was a good but he was a good talker in a good way richard maltby jr bless him um we had him on the show a few times um and he's always volunteered to come back um to tell us stories about things um he's i i really enjoy our time with him um but no, I don't think we've ever had anybody that I was like, oh my God, shut up. <laughs> Get out of here. Like, um, I've never had that. I've never had that. So how has it been recording during quarantine? Fabulous, actually. And to be honest with you, had we known about this beforehand, I think we probably would have gone this route. Um, it is a piece of cake. It's a piece of cake because I mean we're doing it right now, right? You know, it's you're on you're you're very comfortable because you're in your room. I'm comfortable because I'm in my room. You know, otherwise we're meeting sort of like in a sterile, neutral ground. Um, you know, we used to record at Shetler Studios. May they rest in peace because I love them incredibly. But like you know, you would be talking to someone, and outside you would hear somebody doing a monologue. <laughs> you know, you would get all this ambient sound coming in, which you didn't want. Um, it makes people, and it also, I mean, it's, it's given us a chance to like interview people we've always wanted to interview because of their schedules, they couldn't get over to Shetland, where they couldn't get into New York. You know what I mean? So like we've been, I have really liked this. And I'm going to be honest with you. I have a feeling that when we get back to normal, I think we're going to continue on doing it on Zoom. I don't, I really don't foresee us going back into a studio anytime soon. I think this has actually worked out quite well. So lastly, I'm sure that I am and my listeners will be too. Who's on your upcoming list? Okay. Oh, uh, people that, that are going to come out soon. Um, we have, uh, we just released our episode with Bart Shear uh, this past week, uh, which was really incredible. He like took control of the interview and just ran with it and his offer to come back again. Um, but coming up, um, uh, uh, I wish I had my, I, I, I know I can do this. I know I can do this. It is. Um, Malcolm Getz is going to be on the show. Alma Cuervo is going to be on the show. Uh, Tim Rice is on the show. Uh, Matthew, Matthew Broderick's on the show. Um, uh, uh, Michael Levine, who's um, a big uh, sheet music collector, he does a really fun episode with us where he's going to play um, uh, songs that were cut from shows. Uh, the costume designer, Ann Hould Ward, is going to be on the show. I'm sure there is more that I'm forgetting, but those are the ones that are like coming to the top of my head right now. And I, we're right now, like we're talking. And then of course, you know, you know, we always have people that we're like talking to, to see if we can like get them in. Like um, we're, we're, we're trying to get George C. Wolf uh, oh. on the show where we're trying to figure that out right now with him. Um, yeah. So that's, that's sort of where we're at with all of these, with all these people. Um, I don't think we've run out of people to talk to. Do you know what I mean? I, I don't. I don't think we're we're there just yet. We we actually like 
you know, we still have so many, we, we always feel like Kevin and I will be like, oh my God, we're running out of people to talk to. And then you look at the list and you're like, oh my God, we haven't talked to this person or that person. And then there've been people we've spoken to of like, you know, we wanted to get and that they, they either passed away or they've, you know, they've turned us down. Can you believe it? Why would you turn us down? That's disappointing. That's always disappointing to me when someone's like, I'm not interested. You're just like, oh, why? We want you so bad. <laughs> Well, all those upcoming ones sound great, and I'll be excited. Thank you. Thanks. So Thanks. Now, before we have our second guest on, let's talk about your other podcast, Gay Card Revoked. Yes, yes, uh, with Robbie Rizal, the one and only Robbie Rizal. So first, before I ask specifically about that, tell me about working with two different podcast co-hosts. How are they sort of different in the recording? You know what? It, it's so it's so interesting, and I hope they're not offended when I say this. And it's it's they're two totally different individuals. Uh, they're just, and I love both of them equally. Um, with on one sh with with Robbie, because Robbie is so Robbie's like a natural host. With Robbie, I let him take the lead. You know what I mean? I let Rob I let Robbie take the lead. Um, with on behind the curtain. I'll usually take the lead, much to Kevin's annoyance. Do you know what I mean? Like, I will bust out characters or go on a tangent. And, you know, and Kevin is sort of like the Ed McMahon or the sidekick and is like, you know, ha, 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 great. Kevin's brilliant in his own right, you know. Um, but I'm really talking about, like, my favorite things. Do you know what I mean? Like, my favorite things, right? And then on Gay Card Revoked, uh, I will be the sidekick. I'll let Robbie take the lead and I'll, and I'll be Ed McMahon. I'll be the, you know, um, what's his name? Uh, Andy Richter on like the Conan O'Brien show uh, or Guillermo on Jimmy Kimmel. <laughs> uh, but I'll, 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 I will step back and let the other person. And I really like that. I really, really like that. You know, that there's that, there's that range. And not to say when we do the episodes that like there's times where, you know, Kevin takes the lead or I take the lead. Like that's, you know, just, to me, that that's that feels like a good formula. The hard thing on the gay card revoked one is 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 you're like you want this to be more universal. Yeah. You know, so you don't. You know, we'll we'll make jokes and I cut them out a lot. But you know, Robbie and I'll make a joke about like, oh, Alice Ripley and Sideshow, and then I'll cut it out because I'm like nobody's. That's 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 niche. That's too niche, mm. as opposed to like behind the curtain where you don't want to make too many universal jokes like you don't want to make a joke about j-lo because most of our listeners aren't going to listen but you can make a joke about like destry rides again you know what i mean so it's like you have to you have to balance the humor and you have to figure out like what will the audience laugh at and what what they won't laugh at so um gay card revoked and this so that's to me that's it's i like having both energies yeah so on Gay Card Revoke, this was a question I had at the beginning. Um, do you try to do things that are sort of culturally for gay people or things that have actual like gay character in them? Culturally for gay people. Um, things that, you know, for, for whatever. And I mean, there are some things I think will probably, like, like big business um, is, is an example of this, which we just talked about on our last week's episode, which is, it's not, it, there's no, there's a gay character. There's two gay characters in the movie but they're very, they're like really on the periphery. So it doesn't really deal with gay people. 
But if you're a gay person, you probably should see the movie for many, many reasons because it's so quotable and it's so campy and it features so many gay icons in it. So that's really what we're leaning towards. Like Designing Women, which I think was like our second podcast, um, there's not a gay character on Designing Women, you know, but it was a huge part of growing as a gay person growing up with that. Um, so we're trying to hit those sort of landmarks, you know, and I'm sure there'll be things that we explore, you know, I mean, the Golden Girls, I think is a great ex example. You know, it's four women that are all heterosexual, um, that are all cisgender and, but it has this very large queer following behind it. And why is that, you know? As opposed to say, like, if we were like, hey, we're only going to do things with, with, uh, that feature queer characters, we wouldn't be doing Golden Girls. We wouldn't be doing Designing Women. You know what I mean? But that's, uh, that's sort of our, our mission with it. Podcasts aren't visual, but I will tell our listeners that Rob has a Golden Girls poster behind him. I do. I do. <laughs> yes, there, there they are. I'm, I'm a huge fan of the show. I'm a huge fan of the show. So I am, I, and I just got, oh, I don't know if you can see it, but I know it's a visual podcast, but I'll send you a photo. But I just got a photograph of the four ladies that's been autographed by them. I got it at an antique store. So I'm very, very happy with that purchase. <laughs> it's a sad life I live in quarantine, but a fun one nonetheless. Yeah. So, Rob, thank you for joining us today. For thank our you. next portion of this podcast, we are honored to be joined by Freddie Martinez. Freddie is a seven-time Irene Ryan Award nominee and frequents the Lyceum Theater as an usher. He is also a familiar face to patrons of the Murder Mystery Dinner Theater in Fort Lee. Freddie, let's talk about your cabaret show, Very Good Freddie. I hear that you're performing it despite quarantine. How is that? Uh, well, first of all, Chuck, I'm so honored that you've had me on today's show. You, you look like a virile Jim J. Bullock, and I really appreciate that about you. You have a, a Bobby Clark quality with those glasses. Well, thank you for promoting me. First of all, I'm doing a show. Yes, it is in quarantine. It is a cabaret. It is called Very Good Freddy. Very Good Freddy. I got the inspiration from the great late director, Hal Prince, who I auditioned for a record number 1,242 times. And after each audition, Hal, glasses perched atop of his bald pate, said to me, very good, Freddie, you may leave the stage and we don't need to see any more today. Therefore, I took the title with it. I am only performing in very good, Freddie, these songs I sang for Hal specifically. Um, all about three bars each because that's normally how long he would let me go. One time I got to eight bars because he took a nap and then woke up in a fit and said, very good, Freddie, all we need to see today. That was for Rosa in 1987. So I contacted Jennifer Tepper and I said, may I perform at the club at 54 Below? And she said, by all means, it's abandoned. You'll have your biggest audiences yet. I first went to Daniel Dunlow at Green Room 47. And Daniel said, and I quote, no loitering. And I was asked to leave. So yes, at 2 a.m. on Thursdays, you can break in with me at Feinstein's 54 Below to see Very Good Freddie. I'm very excited by it. Please come. Freddie, I have to ask you, the management declined to comment, but why did you get fired as an usher from the Lyceum Theater? Oh, well, I'm so happy that you bring up that question because I do not like the people at the Lyceum. 
That's, there is no denying that. I will tell you why. The Lyceum is where great performances once played. I happen to see George Salazar in Be More Chill. And I said to him, I pulled him aside and I said, George, your song, Michael in the Bathroom is fine. Suggestions for you. I think you should be more experimental. I think you should actually bathe yourself while you are singing to show the character's vulnerability. Two things happened from the Lycia management. Number one, I was told you cannot talk to the actors. And two, you cannot go on stage during a performance to talk to the actors. Therefore, I was asked to leave the Lyceum and George has not contacted me since. So, Freddie, where did you get your first acting job? Uh, my first acting job was in 1952 at the Beef and Boards Dinner Theater. This was before you had to wear a mask. It was at the Beef and Boards Dinner Theater, and we did Natalie Needs a Nighty, and I played the nighty salesman. The, the Natalie, of course, was played by the great Natalie Schaefer, who played Mrs. Howell on Gilligan's Island, and she was quite marvelous. She had a very interesting warm-up regimen. She would get on stage and with her prisk diction say, I hate Freddie Martinez. I hate Freddie Martinez. And she would go up the octave. She was, she was a kidder. She was very dedicated. I remember once I ran into her in Beverly Hills in 1972. I said, Natalie, do you remember me from Beef and Boards? And she said, and I quote, I asked for lemon with my water. Now let's talk about playing or why you played at 50 years old Tulsa to Tova Felcher's Mama Rose. Chuck, that's, uh, I think, a mistake on my Wikipedia. That was actually Ed Asner who played Tulsa. I just understudied him. I understudied him. But I did play Pepper in their production of Annie afterwards, which starred the ghost of Ethel Schutter as Miss Hannigan. Freddie, you tell us how you feel about being passed over for the Irene Ryan Award seven separate times. Well, Chuck, I will tell you, in this business, what you do on the stage is not always rewarded at award season. I was lovers with Irene Ryan. I have no shame in admitting that. And it was a tumultuous love affair. But one day, I was on a road production of her and Vivian Vance, and we were doing murder at the Howard Johnson's at the mall in Secaucus. Not the theater on the mall in Secaucus, but in the mall in Secaucus, there was a J.C. Penney's with a platform that we used to perform on during, you know, blue shopping days. And I had an affair with Vivian, and Irene walked in, and ever since then, she has just been bitter. I'd like to read to you, please, the seven shows I was passed over, if I may, just as a refresher to our audiences. And I, she held a grudge until the day she died. If you remember, I was nominated for I'm Not Getting Married on Wednesday, which was a musical frolic. Hold the Kosher Quiche, which was the story of a rabbi moving to Paris. That's Not My Sock, which happened at a laundromat. It starred a young Don Scardino, very virile. The soldier danced at dawn and soaked their feet at midnight, which was a brilliant political piece about the invasion of Granada. 
She could have said more syrup, which was the story of Mrs. Butterworth. Uh, I also did a production called We Met on Tiptoes with the great Pam Goldberg. And then, of course, the great play Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. So now let's do a little lightning round of some oh, of yes. the actors you've had a chance to work with. Yes. Don Amici. Don Amici. Don Amici. This is a true story. Don Amici came to my dressing room one day and he looked me in the eye and he said, Freddie, I know you stole $2 from my wallet. And I said, yes, I did. He then proceeded to beat the crap out of me in the alley of the Erlinger Theater. That is a true story. I loved him in Cocoon. Eileen Hurley. Eileen Hurley and I also had a tempestuous love affair. It was on a summer stock tour of Bus Stop, where we actually just performed in bus stops. And if the crowd did not beat us up, we sometimes were able to get through the first scene. A good woman and a fast runner with a mean left hook. Charlotte Ray. Charlotte Ray hated me the way she hated everything else. I once did an under five on the facts of life. And I said, Charlotte, do you remember me? And she said, get off my foot, you fat bohemoth. She was a funny woman, funny woman. Norman Lear comedy spouting out of her. Phil Leeds. Phil Leeds and I also had a tempestuous love affair. Phil was bisexual. Not many people know that. And he had me come up to his apartment once in Manhattan Plaza to run scenes from the dark at the top of the stairs. And boy, was that title appropriate. Lou Jacoby. Lou Jacoby was into some interesting fetishes with individuals that I will not get onto in this, in this podcast. I will just say, out of the sake of discretion, it involved key lime pies and 1972 postage stamps. I will let you leave that to your imagination. Loved him and don't drink the water. Freddie, who do you think is the biggest star you've ever worked with? The biggest star I've ever worked with? What a great question. Well, you've heard of Meryl Streep? Not her. I did, though, however, once work with her sister, Linda Streep. She and I worked at a concessions booth at Barclay Center. Good person. She's very quick with those soda machines, you know, so you got to go, Shh, the soda comes in, then it stops, and then you have to fill it up to the top with an extra, Shh, not Linda, Woom, all the way, full top. She didn't have to refill. She's quite a woman. Her, her sister, Meryl, gets a lot of undue attention, I feel. You know, Linda can fill a soda in under three seconds without an accent. Finally, Freddie, tell us about your podcast. Ah, yes. My podcast is called Freddie, We Hardly Knew Ye. And what I do is I go on to my podcast, which my, my, I have a, a roommate, a young boy named Charlie from MIT, and he helped me set it up, you know, because originally I thought for many years I had a computer, and then Charlie said, no, that's just your typewriter next to your television. I did not know. So he helped me set up a computer with a microphone and I go on there and I tell stories about working in community theaters and regional theaters all across this great country. Then we sometimes bring on a guest of someone I've worked with now, most of them are dead. So we usually get out a Ouija board and they will give us answers to their questions. 
Thank you, Rob and Freddie, for joining us today. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. And be sure to come back on Friday when we will be joined by Tony-winning set designer Beowulf Bart. Beowulf has designed the sets for Act One, Bernhard Hamlet, Be More Chill, Freestyle Love Supreme, and many more. Thank you for tuning in.